Um, my name is Brad. I, I work here at the church. I, I do communications organization kind of work here. And I'm, I just am so grateful to the pastors and Pastor Matt for allowing me to continue to learn how to preach and get opportunities. And I, I'm so grateful for this church and allowing that to happen. And I am extremely excited about today. I don't, I'm like kind of uh, like overflowing a little bit with excitement. So if it comes out, bear with me. Um, if you have your Bibles today, um, we're going to be in a familiar like content maybe for you. If you've been around church or you're familiar with the Bible or even movies for that matter, uh, we're going to be talking about the 10 plagues. But for the sake of time, we're going to only read Exodus 7, 1 through 7. And we're going to, because there's some key themes and phrases that come up throughout the plagues, and then we're going to get into the plagues, which span all the way from, from chapter 7 all the way through chapter 12. And so that's going to be our time today. Um, if you are able to stand, um, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Beginning in Exodus 7, verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply many signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then... I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host and my children, the pe or bring my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring my the people out of Israel, people of Israel, from among them. Moses and Aaron did so; they did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. I, I have like a strange question for you. It was strange to me, but as I read this passage, it, this, this question just kept coming to my head. Have you, have you ever thought about the power of names? I'm not talking about like sticks and stones or insults or things like that. I'm talking about actual names of people. They have like this innate ability to like evoke memories, maybe, emotions. Um, certain names like help you recall experiences from the past. Maybe you were named after someone from the past in your family or a friend. Sometimes names evoke Anxiety and your body tenses up when you hear them. Maybe you feel that because there's some type of trauma maybe associated with that name. And some, you know, as I, as I mentioned before, and names can be used as a memorial just so you can remember the legacy and life of that person. There's something, I think, really special about names and the memories and characteristics that are associated with them. Any teachers out there? Any teachers? School staff? Yeah? God bless you. God bless you and what you do, right? Not tomorrow, because you're off, but God bless you. I, I had my first experience in, a, in associating memories with names when I was a school teacher. And Chelsea and I, my wife, we, we started having kids. 
And this strange thing happened. Like names started coming up as possibilities, and we're like, nope, can't do that. They're like, why? Why can't we name this? Why can't this be a possibility? I had this kid. I had this experience. Now, it wasn't like teachers know what I'm talking about, <laughs> and, and some parents do. Um, it, it wasn't like a hatred for the kid. It wasn't like, it was actually some kids that you had, I had this like deep affection and love for, but there was just so much trauma and anxiety, secondary trauma that came into my classroom every day because their lives were so hard outside of school that it, when I heard the name, it, it brought those anxieties in me. I felt it in my body, right? Names have power. And as well as like when we were choosing names for our kids, we chose names of people that we love and revere, especially in the middle names, like all grandparents. And we actually named our last daughter, Lottie, after a friend because we want her to grow up into the type of person who we named her after because we respect her, we revere her, and we were like so honored to be friends with her that we always want to remember that time, right? Like names are powerful, and the, and the same as names for the, in the Bible. Like when you look at the Old Testament, those names are very, very intentional, like the name Abraham. Abraham, the, it's like the Hebrew word means father. Like he's the father of many nations. Sarah, his wife is princess. She was the princess. Jacob and Isaac. Isaac was laughter because Abraham laughed at God when he said, oh, you're going to have a child in your old age. Abraham laughed, so he's going to remember that laughter. Jacob was the heel grasper. He was a deceivious, like he was mischievous and devious in things that he was doing. Later, he was renamed Israel. Man struggles with God. That's what is Israel means. Israel, God and man struggling, because Jacob wrestled with God, and Israel as a nation would be reflective of this wrestling with God throughout their history. And the name of God is also very intentional. Actually, I, I put the Hebrew name of God up on here. It's actually transliterated Jehovah. They, like Jews today and Orthodox Jews will not say the name of God. They will say Adonai or Exalted One. We would, like the pronunciation could be Yahweh. But this name was announced to the people Names were, spoke, were, think of them like monuments. They were like a monument of their characteristics, of their attributes, what they were like. And the same is in the case of the name of God. When you heard the name of God, you heard, this is what he's like. You would know him for what he's like. So it begs the question, when you hear God's name, when, it, when, you, when I say the Lord or, or God or Jesus, what do you think? Do you think big man upstairs? Do you think the boss? Maybe you're good, you know, good Christians, you think omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, just like a good academic or systematic theologian for you Bible nerds out there. It's funny, God never mentions those things about himself. He never calls himself those things. They're true, but he never refers to them that way. And the reason why this is important, there's this wonderful quote by A.W. Tozer. This is important because he says this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What you think about God matters. And God actually provides a way in which we should think about him. He gives it to us actually in Exodus at the end of the, towards the end of the story. Exodus 34, 
Verses 6 and 7, God is telling you, let's look at the list that God provides and compare it to our own list. It says this in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, the Lord, the Lord, he says it twice to add emphasis, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. You see God's name when you hear it? The name that was pronounced to Israel by Moses, the name pronounced to Pharaoh, when you hear this name, this is what you think of. And this is one of the most quoted scriptures in all of the Bible, all of the Old Testament. This scripture, he is a God of mercy and a God of grace. He is loving and he is faithful God to his covenant children. And what we will see from the narrative in the plagues in Egypt, he is a God of justice. And he is a liberator to the oppressed. His love for his people is enormous. He is going to communicate that through the plagues. His name is at stake. And this is where we are in Exodus. Last week, Pastor Matt kind of went into this uh, Pharaoh picks a fight with God. It says this in Exodus 5.2, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. He is essentially saying, I don't know who Yahweh is. Who is this God? I don't know him. It wasn't a plea of ignorance. It was saying, I don't know him. I don't answer to him. I'm divine. I am God. It is a picture of this cosmic warfare that has been happening, this spiritual warfare that's been happening since Genesis 3. Pharaoh now has embodied the terrible lie. We got music going on? Are we good? Oh, cool. He emb- <laughs> this is my nightmare. Um, <laughs> you got to laugh. Laugh at yourself. <laughs> I'm like, is that distraction? Uh, he embodies what the Jesus Storybook Bible calls the terrible lie. If you're familiar, you read this to your, I read this to my kids. The terrible lie. Pharaoh becomes this terrible lie. He makes himself God. You will be like God. And ultimately, he doesn't acknowledge God's name. And he doesn't acknowledge his affection for his people. And his heart is hardened towards God and his people, and God declares war on him, and he brings these acts of judgment. And this is what it says. The whole thing is, is this in Exodus 7, 5. We just read it. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. That's the point. They're going to know who I am when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel among them. And so the 10 plagues, it, again, it might be familiar territory for you. Have you ever seen you may, if you're not a Sunday school kid, didn't grow up going to church, didn't hear about these ten plagues, maybe you saw it in movies. Charlton Heston fans out there? No? Yeah? We got one. Thank you. Um, maybe, maybe Prince of Egypt? Anybody? Yeah, thank you. Yeah. We got, man, you're young for Prince of Egypt. That's great. Or if like Gen Xers, The Mummy with Brendan Fraser? No? Yeah. Oh, yeah, there you go. So... I, I think it's really interesting preaching these familiar texts because a lot of times, I don't know if you read the Bible like me, I can tend to gloss over them. It's like, yeah, God's powerful. He's big. We get it. But I actually think these plagues are commuting something very, very important about God. 
They're communicating something that we, he's getting our attention. And in 714 through 1110, they are very intentional acts. They may seem random, but they are intentional and they are calculated. And the Lord is speaking through them. So we're going to get into them. And we're going to nerd out a little bit. So I've got charts. We're going to do charts. All right. So here are the plagues on the screen, maybe. Yeah, here we go. The Niles turn to blood. There's a plague of frogs, gnats, flies, disease of livestock, boils, hail, thunder, and fire from the sky. And it's, all, it's important that all three of those are in there. Locusts, darkness, and then lastly, the angel of death uh, comes to the firstborn of, of Egypt. And the way in which these plagues are recorded is really, really important. This is really, really important because, remember, God's name is at stake. He says repeatedly over and over again, they're going to know that I'm the Lord. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So in order to share this, these plagues are recorded using a Hebrew literary device, using symmetry. It's like they are important because it's like the symmetry has a couple of tools for you. One, it gets your attention. Hey, look, something's happening here. The second thing it's doing is saying, remember this. Please remember this. And another thing it's doing is that it's like, think of it, in, in many cases, it's hyperlinking to something else. Like you click on a link, it takes you somewhere else. It's like hyperlinking the plagues all the way back to something else. And that's where we're going to look at the structure here. The structure in the next slide, it, it's got this, this, this triads, these triplets, they appear in three sections of three, and then the tenth one is special. Three sections of three. And we can see this because of the timing and in the approach in which these plagues happen. So in the morning, for plagues one, four, and seven, they, Moses is to go to Pharaoh in the morning. It's like, hey, we're going to start this phase one. We're going to start phase two. We're going to start phase three. Then the second plague, so two, five, and eight say go into Pharaoh. It's like, hey, we've tried once. We started here. We're going to the next one. And then the last plague in each triad, if you notice, there's no warning. And you can see this in the text. I have tons of resources if you need them. I read a lot this week. A ton. It's these three things are happening each time. And there's also a pro progression of Pharaoh's heart throughout the entire narrative. If you notice in the first three, Pharaoh hardens his heart. Plague four, plague five, Pharaoh is continuing to harden his heart. And then at the end of, of the second triplet or triad there, the Lord begins to harden his heart. And the Lord does it from there on out. It's like, hey, I've given you over to it now. These intentional things are meant to get your attention. But this structure also point is reflected in another very important Jewish story that happens in history. And that's our next slide. It actually points to the creation narrative. If you look at the creation narrative from a literature standpoint, it is formed in the same way. Obviously, the numbers are different, and we'll get to that. You see that the creation happens. You have three sets of three, or two sets of three. It begins, God creates light, he creates the skies and atmosphere, and then he creates the land and the sea. Then the second three, the second triad, he fills them. But then the seventh day is special. Seventh day is special. And 
This is an important thing because the seventh day is to be practiced forever and remembered forever. It's very important. The Sabbath, the rest of God. And this three and three and three is meant to get your attention, connect to creation, but it's not just the literary function and form. It's also the elements. The use of the number seven in the creation narrative is the number of completion. It was a number of perfection in the Bible. And seven times the phrase was used, the Egyptians will know that I'm the Lord. They're going to perfectly and completely know that I'm the Lord. Get it, getting your attention. Now, the, set, the number seven to the Hebrew people is a number of completion. Because on the seventh day, God rested and said, my creation is complete. But for the Egyptians, the number of completion was ten. Because of the number system that they used was based on ten. So it was like, hey, I'm not just getting Israel's attention and showing them that I'm their Lord, I'm actually getting the Egyptians' attention as well. But more importantly, what are the elements of the plagues? What is God using in order to bring down this acts of judgment? He's using creation. In fact, he's completely undoing it. Tim Mackey, a scholar who created the Bible Project, he calls this process decreation. This idea of decreation. It is the way in which is the Lord is making himself known to his people and to the Egyptians is by taking creation and turning it upside down. He's going to liberate his people by taking creation and raining it down on the Egyptians. And again, he's not just speaking to the Jewish people, but also to the Egyptians. The ten plagues correspond with ten gods in Egypt. God is tearing apart creation, and he's showing the Egyptians, your gods cannot hold it together. Look at what's happening. They're not in control. I am. He's speaking to them. And we see this. This is our last chart, I promise. One more chart. We actually see this happening. God is making him, he's undoing creation. Because each part of, is undoing, each plague is undoing some part of creation. The Nile turning the blood, the very waters that the Spirit hovers over in Genesis 1 are now teeming, instead of teeming with possibility and life, are covered in blood and death. The frogs, a creature of both land and sea, right? God separated the land and the sea, and now the frogs are coming over the land and wreaking havoc everywhere. His creation is being undone. The gnats, if you read it in Exodus, the gnats are formed when, God, when Moses picks up dust and he throws it, and the gnats cover them. To dust you shall return. God made man from dust, and now look what's covering you. I made you. The flies, flies go around decomposing things. These flies are now covering the people they're not covered with life. They are covered with death. Disease of the livestock. The Lord filled the land with livestock, and they're no longer filling the land of Egypt. They're dead in the fields. A disease comes over them. This is, my, this is so interesting to me. Boils. Man, was create, man and woman were created naked and unashamed and beautiful and free. Now they are covered with sickness and pain and disgust. Hail, thunder, and fire, two things that really probably shouldn't, and, and probably shouldn't go together. And the fire itself was 
many theologians argue that it was actually a sustained fire. So you have fire and hail and lightning all at the same time, unnatural. And what does it do? Instead of the crops and vegetation growing up, they're being destroyed. The locusts come in to finish the job of the crops, but there's this interesting language that's used. It says that the, that the ruach of God, the breath of God, the very breath of God that gave life to man, breathed into them, was now blowing in locusts to kill the land, bringing death and, la- and, and darkness, the ninth plague of darkness. The first words that God speaks in the Bible are, let there be light but there's no light now. It's just darkness, and it's filling the land. The angel of death on the firstborn is the curse of death undoing human creation felt after the curse of sin entered the world. God is doing a work of decreation, and it wreaks havoc over all of Egypt, and it completely decimates the place and everyone under the rule of Pharaoh. God kills a lot of people here. And here's the question that comes into mind, and the objections start pouring in, but why? Maybe you feel this. Why all the brutality? Why, all, why does God do this? Like, start, we start raising objections about God's character. Why would you allow this to happen? Why did you do this? Maybe this is happening in your own life right now. Why is this going on? God, I thought your character was loving and merciful and graceful and forgiving. And you're a protector, a liberator. What, what's going on? Why would you allow all these people to suffer? I can't believe in a God who would allow people to suffer in this way. God knew Pharaoh would not change. God had the power to change his mind, and he doesn't do it. Pharaoh would not change his mind, and God knew that, so why would he end more lives? J.A. Motyer, a theologian, says this about the plagues. It is a terrifying tale of the woes which still mark and mar earthly life, and which then is now prompt and intuitive, often rightly indignant, and sometimes understandably hostile. Why? Rising up from earth to heaven. The question is exacerbated by the fact that from the start, the Lord knew that it would have to come to the contest of the firstborn, and therefore, that the earlier acts would prove ineffective. Or ineffective. Why then did he not cut to the chase? Why the prolonged agonies of nine ineffectual acts? This is a tension we have to wrestle with. This is like we hold this tension. If you're a Christian, you have to hold this tension open and honestly. God is a God of justice. He's a God who hates evil, and he's also a God of mercy. And that's how he's known. We have to hold them both in balance. We can't just like get rid of one in exchange for the other. We have to be honest. We have to be honest. And this is a point of contention for people who say, this isn't for me. They can't get over this aspect of the wrath or the judgment or God doing things this way in exchange for the other, for the love and grace of God. They They can't reconcile. But we have to be intellectually honest at the same time. We have to look at who is Pharaoh? What was he doing? What were the Egyptians doing? 
Who was Pharaoh? Pharaoh was an oppressive person. He was oppressive to God's people. We must remember that he was not doing good things. He was oppressive and using and and dehumanizing the people of Israel for his own personal gain. They were instruments of work. They weren't human beings. He was throwing newborn baby boys into the Nile River for years. Hence the first plague being the Nile turned to blood, overflowing with the blood of the children. He was trying to rob Israel. He's like, yeah, you can go worship. And one of the plagues, he's like, you can go worship God, but leave your livestock, leave your wealth. You can go. Just in case you roll out, I still got your stuff. He abused creation for his own gain. These actions evoke cries of justice in our context today. The abuse of children, the the dehumanizing of people, the robbing and taking advantage of the poor. These invoke cries of justice in all of us today, right? And we want God to step in. But what does this say about God? What does it say about God if he lets it endure? What would you do for your kids, parents? Israel, throughout the entire Old Testament, he, God calls him, hey, Israel's my son. What would you do for your kids? If they were being dehumanized, and hurt, and tortured, and killed, what would you do for them? Would you sit still? And this very tension of God's justice and God's love is, is, the, is what is talked about by the Apostle Paul in Romans 9, starting in verse 14. It says this, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is God unjust? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, he's interpreting the exodus, he's interpreting the plagues here. For this very purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name, there's that name again, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. He continues in verse 22, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patient vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Remember, God was patient with Pharaoh. He goes to him and gives him opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. He is patient with him. He is patient vessels of wrath, patient, much patience with vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also to the Gentiles. What Paul is pointing out, he's pointing out what God is doing through these acts of justice and judgment. He is making known the riches of the glory of his mercy. He's letting you know what he's like, what his name is like. And this is the point of it all. The plagues. If you don't hear anything in this sermon, this is it right here. This is the lesson. This whole process of decreation and undoing creation. This is what God is saying. What I think God is saying and communicating through these acts of the plagues. He wants you to know this. God wants his children to know that he loves them so much that he will He is willing to move 
heaven and earth so that they would know his love. He wants you and I to know that he loves you so much that he will undo creation for you. He will move it so that you would be free from your burdens. You and I. That's how much he loves you. He will undo creation for you and me so you can know it, so you can know his name and what he's like. Your freedom from burdens is the goal that you would love him and know his love for you. Yes, the plagues are an act of judgment on the powers of evil, but more importantly, they are a statement of how much God loves his people. And he loves you. I don't know who needs to hear that today, but he loves you. And he's willing to do everything, the entire cosmos being undone for you and for me. And we will either respond to God as a, a, an angry tyrant who is unjust, or we can respond to God as a loving father who is willing to do anything and undo everything for his children to know that he loves them. He is, well, he is doing this through these plagues, and the choice is yours. The choice is yours. Your response is up to you. Just like Pharaoh had agency, his heart was hardened. He hardened his own heart. So you have agency here. It's your choice. My plead with you is that you would view God as a loving father, that he would go to great lengths that you would know his love, that you'd be freed from your burdens. That's my plead for you, but that is up to you. This is you. This is up, this, you have agency here. And our response to God's love says everything about us. It says everything about us. And you will either respond to God with humility and ownership, saying you need him and you need his love, and you're captured by his love, or you respond with a hard heart, as we see in Pharaoh. And, and I just because of the nature of a hard heart being so like, it's, it's just kind of open, I think we all need to be aware of the signs of a hard heart. I know I do. So I want to share, I have like seven signs that I want to show you of a hard heart. Just as like, like we all need signs, like we all have like, like things that remind us of, of, hey, this is when I'm anxious, this is when things are going on. These are like signs for you. These are like reminders. If you start seeing these things or people start bringing these things up for you, be aware and be honest. Here are the signs of a hard heart. A hard-hearted person has an unresponsiveness for mercy toward other people. What's your response to those who are suffering and in need? Is it mercy or judgment? Um, a hard heart has a posture of constant comparison and elitism, both physically and spiritually. Like you're compare, it's always comparing. I'm not as bad as them. Oh, if only I could be like them, then I'll be better. That's a hard heart. A hard heart has a lack of ownership of behavior and circumstances. Everything is everyone else's fault. It's never me. Something. My wife knows that when I'm anxious, she says, hey, you're blaming me. It's not my fault. 
a sign, it's a trigger. Hey, your heart's getting hard, dude. What's going on? A hard heart has a heavy-handed approach toward those around them on how things should be done. It's my way or the highway. It's, this is the only way it should be, can be done. There's a rigidity there. A hard heart is, has an unwillingness to listen to those around them. I don't want to hear it. A hard heart has an inability to celebrate good things for other people. Why is God giving these, blessing these people? They don't, they don't love God. They're not, they don't do good things. Why is God blessing them and, and giving them things and not me? The signs of a hard heart. And lastly, a hard heart, everything seems to be unraveling around them or around you and me, but you remain unwilling to change. That's the big one. And that's, we see elements of all these in Pharaoh. But that, that unwillingness to change is the, the biggest one. If you say, hey, I'm, if, you, if you've gone and tried and tried and there's an unwillingness to change, we have a hard heart here. In fact, six times Pharaoh was, give, was, was, was said that he hardened his own heart and eventually God just gave him over to it. And this is the same for you and me. If we continue, this is why it's so important to be aware of a hard heart. If we continue over and over again to have this posture of a hard heart, eventually God's going to give us over to it. Hardness of heart is not simply about making mistakes. We're all going to sin. We're all going to make mistakes. But it's a continual practice of going to sin. It's a continual practice of going and hardening your heart. We always need to be sensitive because we're always capable of hardening our hearts toward God. And like Pharaoh, left to ourselves, eventually we will unravel. You will unravel. I will unravel. And you will decreate yourself sooner or later. But God continues to make his name known throughout the story of Scripture. And this is the whole theme of the Bible from Exodus all, from Genesis to Exodus all the way through the Old Testament to the New Testament. God continues to make his name known. He is continuing to speak to his people about justice, and he's continuing to speak of his love for his children. The final proclamation of justice and love for his children would come by the name that is above every name, Jesus. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Through him also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is what's beautiful about the gospel, is that, yes, God would not only move heaven and earth to display his love for his people. He would actually leave heaven and come to earth to show you his love. He would take on justice, and he would embody love for his children, even to the point of death on a cross. No lengths that he wouldn't go to because he loves you. And this is the beauty of this. And John, this is why John would encourage the early church by saying this in 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. You have a Father now. A Father who loves you, who will undo heaven and earth for you. Come from heaven to earth for you. That we should be called children of God. And so we are. We are His children. 
God has made known His name through Jesus, has the compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, God. He is the God who has made Himself known through Jesus. The entire cosmos will know the name of God as a liberator to His people through the justice executed by Him on the cross. And at that name, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, even if those hearts are hardened. So I want to close today by actually going back to a specific plague, the 10th plague, probably the darkest of the plagues where Egypt's firstborn would be killed. And remember, I said the seventh plague in crea- or the seventh created act was that God rested. It was to be practiced and remembered. That's why they were given the Sabbath. It was to be remembered forever. And so the tenth plague is actually remembered forever. We call it Passover. And God's judgment on the firstborn or on a sacrificial lamb would actually point to the greatest act of love and judgment that God would perform. And that was on Jesus himself. Jesus, you see, was the Lamb of God. He was the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. And he was the only begotten Son, who was the firstborn among many brethren. You see, God would give up both the firstborn and the Lamb. And we still remember this tenth plague today through the act of communion. On the night that Jesus died, at a Passover meal, at a Passover meal, he remembers the 10th plague. But he doesn't point to the lamb and the firstborn in Exodus. He points to himself and he says, this is my body represented by the bread and this is my blood poured out for you through the cup. That you and I would have a constant, all the time, weekly, daily reminder that God loves you and that he would undo heaven and earth so that you and I would know his love. If you're not a Christian today, I ask you that the church asks you not to take communion, but to process and ask yourself, are you responding to God as a God who is angry and wrathful or is he a God of love and grace for his children? And consider being, becoming one of his children today. I plead with you, See him as a loving father. If you are a Christian, you get to celebrate today. You get to come and take the cup, and you get to experience the love of a father who would move heaven and earth for you and remember what Christ has done on your behalf. Let's pray. Father, thank you for... uh, speaking and revealing your name and your character. Thank you for showing us that you would do anything for your children, that you love them so much. And I pray today that if there's someone here who does not um, feel your love or feel your closest, I pray that you would show them your love today in a deep, intimate way. I thank you for your work on the cross and your glorious resurrection and that you won't leave your children here, but one day you will fully free us when you return, and that is a glorious hope for us today. I pray for blessing and peace and that we would remember that you are a God of justice, but you are a Father who loves your children. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.